Matthew chapter 6. We're going to continue our study through the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer as we better know it. And I just want to read it for us in its entirety this morning. So we begin in verse 9, Matthew chapter 6. In this manner, therefore, pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen we've been working our way through this prayer and uh, every week i think well i'm just going to kind of go a little faster but it seems kind of lord just tugs at my heart and says you need to just kind of take this phrase by phrase there's so much in here And so I thank you for your patience with me as we work through this together. Um, But the Bible teaches us a lot about uh, the the power of prayer. It really does. And um, how many believe prayer makes a difference? I hope you do. Um, I hope that you believe that prayer is effective and that prayer works. Uh, the, in the, throughout the Bible, we see examples of this. You think of Abraham's servant who prayed and Rebekah appeared. You think of Jacob who wrestled and, and prayed and prevailed with, with Christ himself. And, um, and then Esau's mind was turned from uh, 20 years of revenge because of prayer. Joshua prayed and Achan was discovered. Hannah prayed and Samuel was born. David prayed and uh, Ahithophel hanged himself. Asa prayed and victory was won. Jehoshaphat prayed and God even turned his enemies away. Isaiah and Hezekiah prayed. And uh, in 12 hours, listen to this, talk about shock and awe. In 12 hours, 185,000 Assyrians were slain. That's a pretty good defeat. Uh, Mordecai and Esther prayed and the plot to destroy the Jews was thwarted and Haman was hanged on his own gallows. Uh, Ezra prayed, and uh, God answered. Nehemiah prayed, and the king's heart was softened in a moment. You remember Elijah, and he prayed, and there were three years of drought, and then he prayed again, and and it rained. Uh, Elijah prayed, and a child was raised from the dead. You, you stop and you look in the New Testament, you see believers praying, and Peter was released from jail, and it goes on and on and on. And so you don't have to look too far in the Bible to say, well, I wonder if prayer is effective or if prayer really works. Um, James chapter 5, verse 16, we all know this verse probably, it's probably common to us. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Uh, further, it says, giving illustration of effectual and fervent prayer of a righteous man, that Elijah was a man subject to to like passions as we are. See, we think of Elijah and we think of this great prophet and, oh, man, we could never do what he did. Well, it says in the Scriptures that he was subject to passions just like we are and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain and it rained not on the earth by a space of three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heavens gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. And so you say, well, I'm not Elijah. Well, no, you're not. But you're just like Elijah. We all are. And so James throws that little phrase in there just to make sure that we understand that he was a man just like us, yet totally given over to the purpose and plan of God. And if God answered Elijah's prayer, think what he can do with your prayer. Um, 
may not be able to pray for the same things as Elijah did because we don't have that um, revelation from God that, that it's his will maybe, but if it is, then we should pray fervently for that. Um, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And Jesus very clearly said we are to pray. We are to always pray. We're not to faint. And he reminded the disciples about that. Uh, Paul said we're to pray without ceasing. Um, we should pray with all prayer and supplication, he says, always. Um, and God answers prayer. Um, sometimes very specifically, sometimes very directly. God answers prayer sometimes not so directly. Um, and that brings us to this question today. It's kind of an interesting question I have for us. Um, when you come to this phrase in the 10th verse there, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is this just a phrase that Jesus threw in there? What does it mean? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? I mean, we've probably recited that a million times. But what does it really mean? Do we really need to tell God your will be done? <laughs> I thought God was sovereign. God's sovereign isn't that kind of a useless thing to say. Your will be done. Of course it's going to be done if God is sovereign. Is it apparent as you read through Scripture that God's will will be done? Why does he tell us to pray that? Sometimes you... You take that concept so far that you question the validity of prayer altogether. What's the difference? Whether I pray or not, God's got it all worked out. So the question comes up, is not God absolutely sovereign? Doesn't he not only know the beginning from the end and everything in between, but doesn't he determine everything in between? Isn't that what Scripture says? Isn't God in charge of everything? I thought we've taught that over the years. And if he is, and if he's working all this according to his plan and his flowing down all the way, the way he wants it to flow and everything's happening the way he wants it to happen, why in the world will we pray, thy will be done, if it's being done anyway? Who cares? Good question. Kind of leads to another question. Does God change his mind? Are we really praying to get God to do something other than what he had planned to do. Someone else may say, does our will prevail over God's will? Does God will a certain thing, but if we're persistent enough through prayer, does he say, well, okay, I'll go ahead and change it. Does God have to answer our prayers at all? See, just how does prayer, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but how does prayer fit into who God really is in all his attributes and all his qualities? You can sum it up and ask yourself these questions. If God is sovereign, in other words, he's in control of everything. If God is sovereign, why should we pray at all? 
Or another question, if prayer is commanded, (laughs) if God commands us to pray, then how can he be sovereign? Now, there's an answer to this, but I don't know what it is. (laughs) See, throughout Scripture, there's, there's things that, they call them paradoxes. Both things are true. Both truths are true. In our logical mind, we can't put them together. And somehow, in God's mind, they fit perfectly together. But in our mind, they seem totally opposite. Uh, And that just goes to show you that God's mind is so far beyond ours, it's not even funny. It's impossible for us to put those two things together. And yet, God, in his mind, it fits perfectly together. There's no gap at all. There's no contradiction within God. And you stop and you think, well, how can this be looked at? Well, one way is if you stop and I ask you, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew? Hopefully you would say, Matthew, right? But then if I pressed you a little further, you'd say, well, yeah, I mean, he was obviously influenced by the Holy Spirit, so really, I mean, it's the Word of God, right? So God used Matthew to write it. Okay, so was it Matthew or was it the Holy Spirit? Which one was it? Okay, both. And it seems kind of weird because you look at the Gospel of Matthew and, and it's different than the Gospel of Luke because it brings in his personality and his makeup and his character and everything, and he writes a certain way, and Dr. Luke writes another certain way. And so you have that. And yet, so Matthew was not a robot writing the Gospel of Matthew, even though every word he wrote was the very word of God. The Holy Spirit dictated through Matthew what to write, but he wasn't a robot. He allowed Matthew the freedom to use his own language. He allowed Matthew the freedom to use his own expressions. His own personality was in there. So it's Matthew's heart and soul. It's Matthew's feelings. It's Matthew's vocabulary. But it's also the Holy Spirit. It's kind of a paradox. How can it be both? It is. You ask yourself, who lives the Christian life? say, what do you mean? I do. Well, not really me. It's Christ that works in me, the Bible says, right? So it's not really me. Paul says, the life which I now live, I live by the power of Christ that lives through me. But Paul, on another occasion, says, but i got to beat my body into subjection. Paradox. It's both. You live the Christian life. You make a total commitment to present your body as a living sacrifice. But it's also all of Him doing that through you. It's all of you and it's all of Him. And we can't, in our own mind, reason that out. If I asked you, was Jesus God or was He a man? You'd have to say, well, both. He was fully human and yet He was fully God. He is full deity in a human body. That's 100%, 100%. That's 200%. doesn't work that way. My brother Bob, who was a mathematician when he was alive, he always used to get 
frustrated at me when I would say something like, yeah, you know, and this guy, man, I hated to see him lose the game because he was given 110%. He goes, don't say that. That's a stupid thing to say. I said, what? He goes, 110%. You can't have 110% of anything. It's either 100% or it's less. You can't, you can't have more than that. It's a phrase we use. But it's mathematically impossible. I said, oh, okay. Interesting. Well, Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. And sometimes the way our logic thinks, and my brother Bob would always call me up with these questions that he'd find in scriptures reading some obscure part of the Old Testament or something, and I'd finally have to say, you know what, I don't know. And nobody else knows. I've looked, at, and, and nobody comes up with an answer. So we just kind of have to let some of these things go. And, um, but his logic, the way he thought, would want to force certain things. And when it comes to God's word, you can't do that. You stop and you ask even the simple question, how did you become a, a Christian when you came to Christ? Well, the Bible says that that was settled before the foundation of the world. It says we were chosen in him. He wrote our name in the Lamb's book of life. It was all predetermined. But how did you become a Christian? Did you just wake up one day and the, all of a sudden you were a Christian? No. I came because I, I chose Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. Somebody presented the facts to me and I said, yeah, I, I want to express my volition and follow Christ. Was it you or was it him? It's both. Jesus is not going to have anybody in heaven kicking and screaming. I don't want to go, but you were chosen too bad. It doesn't work that way. We came to Christ with a whole heart and we were willing to give everything to Him. And He drew us. Yes, He worked it out. Yes. But He also didn't leave us out of the, the equation. It was totally designed in God's sovereignty before the foundation of the world and yet He still included us in it somehow. I don't understand that. And you can't understand it. Someone said this is salvation is kind of like salvation is is God throws one vote for you and Satan throws one vote against and then you cast the deciding vote. That isn't true at all. That doesn't, you know, work out with scripture. But what happens when we're presented with those two truths that don't make logical sense in our minds sometimes, we want to find some middle ground in between them. And we want to say, well, it can't be this and this, so let's just say, well, here's how it works. We can't do that. God is sovereign. God has predetermined the flow of the universe. God knows the end from the beginning, and God will do what God will do. On the other hand, you have to believe that prayer works. And if you don't understand how those two things come together, you're going to let your theology destroy your prayer life, as many theologians have done. That kind of attitude kind of just looks at God and says, well, you're going to do what you're going to do anyway, so why should I even pray at all? So forget it. I'm not even going to pray. Maybe you have a lost relative that hasn't come to Christ yet. It's very easy to conclude, well, you know what? He's going to be saved or she's going to be saved or she's going to be saved. I have nothing to do with it. I would beg to differ. I believe God commands us to pray for the lost, that they would come to Christ. And I believe God answers those prayers. How does that all fit together? 
you can find kind of sense the tension that we're looking at this morning. So when we come to verse 10 and it says, Thy will or your will be done, you can relax a little bit because we're not going to even cover this whole thing this morning. But when we look at this prayer, it's not just some ritualistic prayer that we pray. It was a model prayer that God gave us to base all of our prayers around. Someone put it this way. I cannot say R, O-U-R, if I live only for myself in a spiritually watertight compartment. I cannot say Father if I do not endeavor each day to act like his child. I cannot say who art in heaven if I am laying up no treasure there. I cannot say hallowed be thy name if I am not striving for holiness. I cannot say thy kingdom come if I am not doing all in my power to hasten that wonderful event. I cannot say thy will be done if I am disobedient to his word. I cannot say in earth as it is in heaven if I will not serve him here and now. I cannot say give us this day our daily bread if I'm dishonest or if I'm seeking things dishonestly. I cannot say forgive us our debts if I harbor a grudge deep within my heart against someone. I cannot say lead us not into temptation if I deliberately place myself in temptation's path. I cannot say deliver us from evil if I do not put on the whole armor of God daily. I cannot say thine is the kingdom if I do not give to the king the loyalty due his name as a faithful subject. I cannot attribute to him the power that he deserves if I fear what men may do to me. I cannot ascribe to him the glory that he deserves if I'm seeking glory and honor only for myself. And I cannot say forever if the horizon of my life is bounded completely by time. See, what that author is saying, he's saying that it is an expression of a heart, of an, the attitude of the heart, of a right relationship with God. That's what that prayer is about. It's not just some prayer we recite. It's so much more than that. It's the focus of a heart that's right with God, and, and, and that's how the model that we should pray. We've already seen the beginning part there, God's paternity. He says, our Father in heaven, the fatherhood of God. Abba, we can cry out to him. But then he follows that right up with, hey, you better not get too comfortable with me because hallowed be thy name. God is the priority in this whole plan. It's his purpose, his plan that needs to be carried out. And then it talks about his program, Thy Kingdom Come. And now we look at the plan for, for prayer. What does God plan for prayer when we pray? What is the purpose? Well, it says here, Thy, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Once again, you're focusing on God. You're not focusing on yourself. In the beginning of the prayer, we recognize that God is a loving Father. He's not somebody just to be feared like, a, like a, a monster. He wants to help us. He wants to assist us in our lives. He knows what's best for us. And not only that, but he goes on and he says, Hey, you know what? It's my priority. Hallowed be your name, my name. And it's, it's kind of an important thing that, that he points us in that direction. 
And then he says, your kingdom come. And then your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, how do you carry this out? Well, first of all, we looked at you have to have some form of conversion. You have to come to Christ. If you're going to be part of his kingdom, you can't just, you know, just march in the kingdom. You have to have a right to, to that kingdom. And that only comes through Christ. I had the privilege to go to a baseball game Friday night down at see the Giants. And um, I was sitting there in the park and I looked around and I realized, you know what? There's very little, if any, I think one sign that has anything to do with Barry Bonds. You would never know this man played in that ballpark. I was just looking around going, wow. I remember before when he was playing, this used to be here and they'd have a little, you know, crew over there and all this. Nothing. It's totally wiped out. And I thought, I wonder if he just showed up at the park without a ticket. I mean, I wonder what they'd do. I mean, think about it. He couldn't just march in the, 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 the locker room probably anymore and all that. I mean, if he's not on the team. I mean, there's certain privileges that comes with being on the team. And that's the same way it is as a Christian. There are certain privileges that come when we're converted, when we come to Christ, when we allow Christ to be the ruler of our life. And then secondly, we talked about the commitment that once we come to Christ, we need to commit to live a righteous, joy-filled, peaceful life through the Holy Spirit. And we also have to anticipate His coming again. We want that to affect change in our life. And then we come to this part of God's plan where he says, Thy will be done. Whenever we pray, obviously we're to pray in accord with God's will. But as we looked at last week, sometimes we don't know how to pray as we ought, do we? The Bible says sometimes you don't know how to pray, so the Holy Spirit has to intercede for us. If you take this statement literally, in the Greek, it says something like this. Your will, whatever you wish to happen, let it happen immediately. And then it says, as in heaven, so in earth. That's literal translation of the original language. In other words, God, do whatever you want. That's the bottom line in any prayer. Do what you desire. Do what's in your heart to be done because you're so much more wise and have so much more wisdom than I do. That's the petition here. In Psalm 40, verse 8, David prayed, I delight to do thy will, O my God. I delight to do your will, God, not my own. He wanted to know it. He wanted to know it and do it. And that was what was in his heart. And you also see that even in, in Christ's life when he was here on earth. In, in John 4.34, he said, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. That's what Jesus Christ Himself said. He wasn't here with His own agenda, His own plan. He was here to do the will of the Father. In John 6.38, it says, For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. In the 3.3, he says, Whoever uh, does the will of the Father, the same is my mother, my sister, my brother. And yet, in several of the Gospels, we record him in the garden praying in agony, and you remember this. And he says, nevertheless, not my will, but what? Thine be done. We see it. It's a pattern in Jesus' life. He always wanted the will of the Father to be done in his life, to be carried out. But what does that mean? 
Thy will be done. Well, there's a negative side to this and there's a positive side. I want to look at the the negative side today. There are people who pray, Thy will be done, but they pray it with the wrong understanding. First of all, you can pray, Thy will be done, with an attitude of bitter resentment. Have you ever been there? I have. In other words, it's a statement of someone who believes they can't escape from the inevitable. They look at their circumstances and just in bitter resentment, they go to God and just they're mad about it. And it's built on a lack of knowledge about who God is. They think of God as this oppressive, dictator kind of person, overbearing, selfish, cruel individual. And so they're going looking at God saying, yeah, my will be done. William Barclay says this about some people. He says, some people say, thy will be done, not because they wish to say it, (laughs) but because they've accepted the fact that they can't possibly say anything else. They have accepted the fact that it is too strong for them, that God is too strong for them, and that it is useless to batter their heads against the walls of the universe. You may have been through that in your own life. You may have come to a situation in your life where you say, you know what, thy will be done with clenched fists and, and, and just, you know, clenched teeth. Maybe in the loss of a dear, precious child. Maybe someone you loved. Maybe a broken love. Maybe physical situations that are out of your control in your own life. And you turn to God and you say, you know what? Your will be done. But you say it with an attitude of bitterness. See, some people see God as the ultimate checker player. And he's got this big checkerboard and we're just these little pieces that he just moves around whenever he feels like it. And then when he's done having fun, he puts us in the closet. Someone wrote this, and he was seeing God as a cricket player with a bat. And the man as the ball, which had absolutely no choice about where it goes. And he wrote this, The ball, no question, makes a vase and and knows, but here or there as strikes the player goes. And he that tossed you down into the field, he knows about it all. He knows, he knows. And it's kind of like this bitter resentment. Like God is just kicking us around on the football field of life for the fun of it. I read an illustration about Beethoven. And they said, when they found him, after he had died. I mean, he wrote incredible music. And through that whole process, he became stone deaf. Biographers tell us when Beethoven died, they found his body, and they said his fists were clenched, and his fingernails were literally digging into the palms of his hands. 
as if he were trying to strike at God. And his lips were drawn back in a snarl as if to spit in defiance. Bitterness at God who made him deaf. See, some people approach life that way. They just become bitter and they become angry at God because something happened earlier in their life or some circumstance came up and and they just have this bitter, angry attitude. And thy will be done becomes this cruel, inevitable statement of an uncaring God. I pray this morning that's not your attitude. You don't have that bitter resentment. Secondly, it can be passive resignation. Other people who say, thy will be done, they don't say it with a bitter spirit or a bitter attitude, but they say it with what we call passive resignation. Now, thy will be done. (laughs) Whatever you want to do, Lord, I can't do anything about it anyway. Thy will be done. And it isn't so much a lack of knowledge about God as the first one. See, a lack of understanding that God is a loving Father. A lack of understanding that God cares. That God's heart breaks over the pain of man. A lack of understanding that God loves us so much that He died in the midst of that love. See, that's the lack of understanding from a bitter perspective. But here, it's, it's almost a lack of faith. It's almost like you're looking at God saying, you know what, what am I going to do about it? I don't get concerned about it because, you know what, the whole thing, you know, prayer doesn't do much anyway because he's got the whole thing worked out. You just kind of resign your, yourself to God's will. Whatever it is. It's kind of like admitting defeat. <laughs> you know, have you ever been in a ball game or a football game or something where inevitably you're going to lose? It's so hard to keep a team pushing on for the next down or the next inning when that's, you know, when the scores just run up so high. Because you just, it's just like life is sucked out of your soul and you just feel, what's the use? Sometimes we approach prayer that way. We approach life that way. We just resign ourselves. Well, it's God's will. When we say, thy will be done, we just kind of tack it on the end just to kind of cover the inevitable, whatever. (laughs) Because we really don't believe that our prayers are going to make any difference anyway. See, that, it's really accepting that it's, it's all going to turn out the way God wants it to turn out. Joylessly, tired, weary, defeated, resigned, unthrilled, kind of about the whole thing. You just kind of, Barclay calls it gray acceptance. He says some people pray with gray acceptance. Just kind of like, blah. And that's his perspective we see a lot in our churches today. And I think one of the reasons is is our prayer lives are weak. They just are. And as it is, we really don't believe that it would do anything anyway, so we just kind of resign ourselves to whatever. We just bail out on passive resignation. Can you imagine if every time you prayed, you would believe that your prayers would be answered? And then you saw them being answered? Can you imagine the attendance at a midweek prayer meeting if that was the case? If we really believe when we go to God in prayer that God was going to answer our prayers. 
I think things would change a little bit. But we just kind of bail out in passive resignation, saying, hey, God's going to work it out anyway, whatever. Turn over to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. It's a good illustration of this in Acts chapter 12. And you, you know Peter's been in prison here. And, uh, and the church is concerned for him, obviously. Um, and they were upset because uh, just prior to Peter, under Herod, um, James, the brother of John, lost his head. <laughs> He was beheaded. So they're a little concerned about Peter being arrested and put in prison. They're thinking this could be the end of this guy's life. And so when Peter was in prison, they feared that the same thing would happen to Peter, that happened to James. And so they got kind of concerned. And uh, they got over to Mary, the mother of, of John Mark, and they got the, the house there, and they started their prayer meeting in Acts 12. And they began to pray, Oh God, release Peter, O oh Lord, release Peter. Now you can read it there for yourself. And while they were having their little prayer meeting there in the house, the angel of the Lord came in and got him out of jail, got Peter out of jail. And Peter thought he ought to go across to the town where the prayer meeting was and see the folks that were praying for him to be released from prison. And so he banged on the door and says that Rhoda, a little maid, came to the door and she didn't even open the door. She just asked who it was, and she recognized his voice, obviously, and she ran in. And that's a pretty fast answer to prayer. They're not even done with the prayer meeting yet. They're praying for Peter to be released, and he's already knocking on the door. And she ran in, and she said, it's Peter. He's, it's Peter. He's at the door. And they said, oh, Rhoda, what, what are you talking about? Can, can, let's, don't interrupt our prayer meeting. We're praying for Peter to be released. We know he's in prison. That's why we're praying. Get a clue. You're just a maid. Go away. Back on your knees. And she persisted. No, no, it's really Peter. And they obviously had a very wise theologian among them. And they, maybe it's the angel of Peter. Maybe it's his angel. It's kind of a silly thing to say. If it was his angel, you think that the angel would be with Peter in prison where he would be needed there. He wouldn't be coming to the prayer meeting. That didn't seem to make any sense. And finally, she persisted and they went out and they brought Peter in. And the Bible says what? They were all astonished. They were blown away. And I think the reason was is because like so many Bible-believing Christians today, when the time came that they had seen the hand of God work, they questioned. They thought, well, this, you know, our prayer meeting, we're just kind of going through the routine here. We don't really expect Peter to be released from prison. They passively resigned, I believe, at that point. And they were astonished when God actually answered their prayer. And another angle on this whole thing is we just want to classify everything as God's will. I was out on a chaplain call one time and 
there was a new chaplain working with me. And there was this teenage son that was life was taken prematurely in an automobile accident or whatever. We were actually out where the, the wreck was. This was down in Southern California. And, you know, the wreck, was, it was just horrible. I mean, there's nothing left. And, and I remember the mother, you know, screaming and wanting to go see her son, and it was just horrible. And I remember this guy that was with me. You know, he he didn't know what to say to his mother. And sometimes... I've learned the best thing to say is nothing. Nothing. Because there's nothing I could say to take away their pain. I mean, it's not the time to get, you know, evangelistic and, you know, all that. It's just not the time. So sometimes you're just standing there and you feel helpless and you're just praying, God, give me the word, give me the prayer, give me something. And I remember after this real long, I mean, this lady's just sobbing. You know, this guy went over and he put her hand on her shoulder. And he said, you know, it was God's will. And I mean, I just about came unglued. I mean, just all the emotions come back to me even now. I was just sitting there in utter astonishment that he would say something like that. But you know what? There are people that that's how they live their lives. Well, it's God's will. Thy will be done on earth. And they just assume that, well, that's, that's the way it is. It's all God's will. See, when you, he says here, thy will be done on earth. It assumes something. It assumes that it isn't always done on earth. Right? Why would he pray that if it was always done on earth? It'd be like me taking a drink of this water and saying, can somebody give me a drink of water, please? Somebody please give me a drink of water. You'd say, that's silly. You got water right in your hand. See, he's saying, Thy will be done on earth. Why? Because sometimes God's will is not done on earth. When we pray, Hallowed be thy name, there are times, there are places where God's name is not hallowed. Thy kingdom come. There are people whose hearts reject the rule and reign of Christ in their lives. And so when he comes to this point and he says, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We have to say the same thing. It isn't always His will. Not everything that happens in the world is His will. In this sense. You need to understand that or this petition is totally pointless. And the Lord's asking us just to mumble some words that make no sense and they aren't going to change anything. I mean, sometimes, and you hear this over and over in our own own lives. Maybe a child died of a fatal disease. Maybe a child was killed by an automobile. Whatever it is. Well, it's the Lord's will. Are you going to a house where a mother who isn't so needed by the husband and the child and, 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 and the, the husband's racked with cancer? 
and he's fading fast. And this, this mother and this child need this, this individual in their life. Well, it's God's will. Or you hear about a disaster like the cyclone or the, the earthquake. And, well, it's an act of God. It's God's will. They must have been doing something wrong over there. See, if you start looking at life that way, it's going to suck the energy right out of you, especially out of your prayer life. It's going to make you impotent as far as your prayer life goes because you're going to realize you can't do anything anyway. Let me tell you one thing. That is not God's will that those things happen. It is not. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that Jesus came into the world to stop from happening. Do you understand that? I don't know about you, but my Bible says God is not willing that any should perish. And believe me, there are people perishing all over the place. God, the Word says, who would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But you know what? Not all men do. God's will is done in heaven, but it isn't always carried out. It isn't always done on earth. That brings attention into my theology. I, I look at that and I go, ah, this is hard to understand. And I don't even know if I'm doing justice in communicating it to you this morning. But I guarantee you to give you something to think about when you leave here. You say, well, doesn't God allow those things? Sure. But don't make it an expression of His will. That's an expression that means it, it means a strong desire. Um, is it not God's strong desire that people die? No. You can't say that. Why would he come to destroy death if his will is that everybody die? He came to destroy death. It's not God's strong desire that people go to hell. Or why would he die and provide salvation that keeps them from going there? So we come down to the point here where God has allowed man the choice to do evil or to do good. There's a, there's a choice in front of us. Man has a choice, but I believe also God is sovereign it's one of those paradoxes. It's one of those things that don't make sense in our logical mind. But it's there. God has allowed sin in this world. The Bible says that God has allowed the cup of iniquity to be full. But it's not an expression of His will. He just tolerates it for the time being. God is not responsible for sin. He's not responsible for His consequences. It's not his will that sin rule and reign in this world. That's not his will. Over in Matthew 10.28, it says, Fear not those who destroy the body, but fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. Who's he talking about? He's talking about God. 
God will destroy soul and body in hell outside all, for all those who are outside of Christ. He's not talking about Satan here. He's talking about God. Satan is the one being destroyed, ultimately. He's not the one destroying here. God destroys the soul and body in hell. And you say this, well, it must be the will of God that they be destroyed. No, it's not. 2 Peter 3.9 says, God is not willing that any should perish. See, God's holiness, God's justice, God's righteousness has to provide and deal with sin. That's what He has to do because that's who God is. But that's not God's will. That's not His strong desire. That's what that word means. That's within the framework of His tolerance. He'll tolerate it. But it's not His will. John 5.40, our dear Lord said this, You will not come unto me that you might have life. And he wept over Jerusalem. And he said, O Jerusalem, you that kills the prophets, stones those who are sent unto you, how often I would have gathered you as a uh, chicken gathers her chicks, but you would not. See, and you you see the same thing in Jeremiah 13. God speaks through Jeremiah and he says, You have not heard my word. You have not obeyed my commandments. He says, I will destroy you. I will make you drunk. I will dash you against one another. I will bring, you, uh, bring upon you the darkness of death and all of this terrible, fearful judgment in Je- Jeremiah 13. And then in the very next verse, it says this, if you don't obey and you don't turn around, I have to do this. Then he says this, then my eye will weep with bitter tears. Why will he do that? Because that's not his desire to do those things. That's never an expression of God's great desire for man to destroy man, to send man to hell. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he what? That he gave his son. Why did he do that? That men might be saved from all this, these horrible judgments to come. And your mind's probably really spinning now, and you're probably saying, well then why did God allow sin in the first place? I still remember the day I was up here, actually, got a phone call from my wife saying that our daughter, who turned 18, was leaving the house. She was going to go out and express her independence. <laughs> wasn't our choice for her to do that. wasn't my will, but that's exactly what she did. She went out from underneath our household, and she expressed her independence. And she wasn't living for the Lord at the time, so her life was filled with things that were not within my will for her to do. She was doing things that were totally out of my will. If she would have been living in my house, she wouldn't have been doing those things. And it broke our hearts to have to go through that. And yet, she lived in the framework of her own choice. Even though I was her father, and I had a will for her, and I wanted her to do certain things with her life, she chose to do something else. And as a father, I was left to deal with some of the consequences of those things. See, God is a loving father. And and mankind, in in a very general sense, and even a a believer, you have the right to express your own will, don't you? You can get up right now and say, you know what, I don't want to hear them. Walk out. That's your will. You can do that. God's not going to strike you dead. You can get up and walk out right now. You could have woke up this morning and said, I'm not going to church. God's not going to make you come to church. You have a volition. You have a will. 
You can choose to sin every day if you want to. Or you can choose to live a, a righteous life every day. And do you think God wants you to choose to sin? Do you think God somehow is up in heaven setting you up every day? Ah, let's put him in this situation, see how he handles it. I don't think so. It's not God's will that you sin. He doesn't want you to sin. I don't see that in the Bible anywhere. But some people, they carry the sovereignty of God to the point where, well, you know, even those who are in sin, well, you know, I guess that's God's will for their life. No, it's not. You get to that point, you're dealing with fatalism. You're dealing with this attitude of, you know, well, 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 why even do anything? Very dangerous place to be in. And usually people get there because they want to make logical sense of who God is and how this all works together. And what I'm telling you this morning, sometimes you can't. You just can't. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, sometimes God's will is not done on earth. Well, why did God allow sin then? Good question. The Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible doesn't tell us. One commentator made a guess at it. He said, when Lucifer fell... Well, how did that happen? How did, how did Lucifer fall? I don't know. I mean, the Bible tells us the circumstances, but if you, if you stop and you think about that for a second, well, he fell because of his pride, right. But where did his pride come from? He was perfect. Well, it must have been his environment. No, his environment was perfect too. <laughs> so where did this sin come from that affected him? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Good question, but nobody can answer that. So Lucifer sinned. And God at that point had basically two options. He could just kill Lucifer right away and just be done with him. And this individual says if he had done that, maybe some of the other angels would look at that and say, hey, this guy was on to something. Lucifer was on to something. I mean, he crossed the line and God snuffed him out. There must be something over that line. So time would go by and maybe another angel would cross that line and God would have to snuff him out again. Snuff another angel out. And God spends eternity snuffing out disobedient angels. He didn't choose to go that route for whatever reason. He chose to do the second option, which is the only other option, was just let it run its course. Let sin run its course. And eventually, it'll run itself out. And that's exactly what's happening if you look around us. He was just going to let evil run its course, its full course. It's going to spend itself. And that's what God chose to do. Rather than deal with a bunch of rebellious angels, he just said, okay, you know what? However you got on this road, you're on the road. We're just going to let it go down that road. And during this time when evil is just running over everything... That is not by any stretch of the imagination the will of God. Don't look around and look at the, the, the sickness of our society and, you know, they just passed this homosexual, homosexual ruling in San Francisco for state of California. And all. You know, don't think that's God's will. 
He's graciously tolerating us at this point. If you live on the coast, I'd maybe move inland a little bit because you, know, you don't know what's going to happen out here. But that is not the will of God. So don't just passively resign yourself to, you know, when you come to prayer, well, I will be done out of bitter resentment or passive resignation saying, well, God's got it all worked out and I'm just going to let it go. And we've already started on the third one. There are theological reservation when you, when you think about this and theological implications involved in what we're saying this morning. It, it's hard to comprehend. If you take the stance, well, God's just going to do whatever He's going to do and He runs everything and it's cut and dried and I'm not going to worry about it. You know what? Why would you even have a prayer life? Why would you put a priority on prayer at all? I mean, theological reservation says, you know what? I don't need to pray because after all, it's all settled. It's all God's will. Everything is God's will. God's up there and He's big and He runs everything and One writer put it this way. He told of a story where he was going to take his little daughter for a walk. And his little daughter didn't want to go for the walk. It's a beautiful day out. Sunshine, birds, trees. And he said, oh, come on, you know. And so finally he grabbed his little daughter by the hand and they went for the walk. And they were gone about a half hour and they came back. And he said, now, aren't you glad that you decided to go on the walk with me? Honey, and she said, no, I didn't decide. I just went because you're bigger than me. And you know what? Sometimes that's how we are with God. We're just like kids. You know, because we're bigger than them, we can make them do certain things. Sometimes we think if God is bigger than us, which he is, well, he's just going to do what he's going to do. And and we don't play any part at all in anything. See, when we come to that point in our theology, it's, it's fatalism. It's like, hey, just sit back in the armchairs of grace and let things work its way else. That's not the will of God. That's not what God wants us to do. Because he's saying here that we should be praying, thy will be done. We're not talking about any of those negative things. Saying that with bitter resentment. You know, saying that with some, some sort of, uh, some sort of uh, theological reservation. That's not what we're talking about here. There is a choice in life. There is an alternative. Turn over to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Jesus is sharing a parable here. Verses 1 through 8. It says, He spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was a certain city, in a certain city, a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, 
get justice for me from my adversary. So there was a wrongdoing, something happened that wasn't right, and this widow wanted justice done. In verse 4 it says, And he would not for a while. In other words, he wouldn't listen to her. He just kind of cast her off. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow what troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? So he shares this parable with him. And there was something done, and she wanted justice, and she kept bugging him. She kept on coming to the judge. Back and forth, back and forth. It's a fabulous illustration of being persistent. Now, it's important to understand that the parallel Jesus is drawing here was not between God and the judge. That's, that, there's no parallel there at all. The, the parallel that Jesus is drawing for us is between the widow and the petitioner. The widow and the person praying. There's two things here this woman brought up. One, she refused to accept an unjust situation. She just wouldn't accept it. And number two, she persisted with her case. She said, I'm not going to accept this unjust situation. I'm not going to tolerate this thing. And she just kept on bringing it up and up and up in the judge's face. See, you have to understand, as believers, we have a right to refuse to accept certain situations in this world. We have a right to refuse it. We have a right to refuse the way things are. And we have every right to pray persistently that God would change them back to the way that they should be. See, and what Jesus is trying to say here is, Thy will be done is not a gray acceptance. (laughs) When we pray, Thy will be done, sometimes it's even in rebellion to what we see going on. You mean our prayers are to be rebellious? Sometimes they are, yeah. They're to be a form of rebellion. Against what? Against the world. Against the way we're going in our society. Against all the evil that we see around us. We're to rebel against that. Not just passively sit by and say, well, it's God's will that this stuff happened. No, we're supposed to go to God and petition Him and beg Him. Lord, allow justice to be done in these situations. being under the altar in Revelation 6 and crying out, Oh Lord, how long will you tolerate the way it is? Or as David prayed, Oh God, do not let your enemies prosper. Do not let unrighteous men fare well. See, when we pray, Thy will be done, it's really a a rebellious prayer against the evil of this world. It's a rebellious prayer against sin. It's a rebellious prayer against the consequences of sin. And that's what we're called to do. 
So if you have some rebel in your spirit and you want to be rebellious, begin to pray that God would have his way here on earth as it is in heaven. And do it with persistence. Never forget dealing with a a couple who were dealing with some marriage issues years ago. They sat in my office and got so bad they were both dating other people at the time. And they came for marriage counseling. I don't know why, but I was a young youth pastor. I didn't know what I was doing. And, but I did know one thing. It wasn't what they said was God's will. wasn't God's will. I remember asking this guy, well, why are you here? Well, we just want to make sure that, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm in love with this other girl, and, and I just know it's God's will. And I stopped, and I said, no, it's not God's will. It's not God's will. You're married to this woman. You made a commitment, even within the church, before God, to death do you part. Now you're saying that it's God's will that you leave her and go marry this other girl. And she's saying, well, I'm going to leave him. And I said, that's not God's will. If you go down that path, go ahead. But don't sit here and tell me it's God's will that you're doing it. Because it's not. See, and we need to take situations like that and rebel against them and say, hey, wait a minute, let's pray that God would restore what's right here. And be persistent. And continue to persist until we see God's justice and His will being done here on earth as it is in heaven. It's not a passive thing that we just sit by and, and let the world go down, you know, go to hell in a handbasket and just say, oh, well, you know, it's God's will. No, it's not. That's why Jesus said, pray at all times and do not lose heart. In other words, don't just become passive. Don't just acquiesce to whatever's going on around you. You remember that song? Um, uh, I think it was in the Sound of Music. Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. You know, it's just like, eh, whatever. That's not what we're called to do as believers. I mean, Christians have been praying for a long time for Jesus to come. Even so, come Lord Jesus. That prayer means, you know what, come. You know, you don't deserve this kind of treatment. Lord, come and set up your kingdom. Come and be glorified. Come and be honored. We've been praying for 2,000 years, and we'll keep praying. Why? Because we're going to rebel against what the world is telling us. And we believe that He will come back. And He will call us to be His own in eternity. So there should be persistence in our prayer. I mean, even in Matthew 26, verse 3, Jesus said, Oh, my Father, if it possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not I will, but thou wilt be done. Remember that? He just didn't stop there. A little later on, verse 42, says he went again to a second time. And he said, Father, if this cup may not pass from me, except I drink of it, thy will be done. Just making sure I'm on the right path. Just making sure I'm doing what you want me to do, God. If there's a way out, that's fine. I'm, I'm all ears. Then it says a little later down, he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Three times the Lord prayed that prayer. And after each time he came down and he found them sleeping. Jesus never accepted the status quo. He didn't say, oh, well, I've got to go to the cross anyway. I'm not going to pray about this. This is silly. I'm just going to go do it, get it over with. He 
He asked God, does it have to be this way? You sure it has to be this way? <laughs> if there's any other way to do this, I'm open to it. But you know what? Your will be done in my life. And what he was saying is I'm rebelling against this, this sinfulness I see around me. I'm rebelling against the power of sin to take my life. I'm rebelling against the necessity for bearing sin. I'm rebelling against all those things that violate your holy universe. And yet, you know what? If this is your will, I'm willing to go through with it. And they were just there sleeping because they were indifferent. They just thought, ah, whatever. Why even go down this road? Next week, we're going to look at the positive aspects of of this statement, Thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. But those are the negative ones. So when you leave here today, think, are any of those popping out to me? Do I approach prayer with kind of a complacent attitude, a bitter attitude, theological reservation, passive resignation, just kind of, or do I really believe that God answers prayer? And if I really believe that God answers prayer, why isn't prayer a dominating factor in my life? Because I guarantee you that probably most of, in most of our lives, it's not. It's something we fit in before a meal. It's something we fit in before we go to bed or when we wake up. It's something we fit in on a Sunday morning somewhere or a Wednesday night at care group. Do we really believe that God answers prayer? And if we do, why aren't we praying more? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for touching our hearts with your truth again. And, and Lord, we ask that, Lord, I pray for myself, that, that you would give us a new vision of what it means to be a prayerful people. Lord, that we wouldn't allow our theology to override your will being done on this earth. Lord, that you, we would not allow our theology to interfere with your commands for us to pray. Lord, we thank you that we have people even now within this room who are real prayer warriors. They believe in prayer and they they practice it daily, but I, I, I guarantee you that is not the majority here. And so, Lord, I pray that you would touch us anew with your spirit. Give us a real desire to come to you in prayer not just to ask you for things as we looked at last week but to have that communion with you to spend the right amount of time with you the time that you desire for us to spend with you in your word Lord we pray if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you that they would cry out to you that they would acknowledge their sinfulness before a holy God that they would cry out to you be merciful to me a sinner Lord Jesus come into my life and Forgive me of my sin. Transform me into the person you desire me to be. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy in our lives. And we close our time together in prayer. In Jesus' precious name, amen.